Lastly, we're going to talk about the film that was undoubtedly the most challenging film for viewers this week, the notorious Louis Buñuel film from 1962, The Exterminating Angel. Because of problems negotiating with distributors for a streaming replacement to screenings in 250, not all of our listeners had access to it. So if you're still looking to be able to see The Exterminating Angel, it is available through the Criterion Channel, which is an excellent online streaming service for serious film connoisseurs. Returning to the podcast, in this, our hour of interpretive need to help us work our way through this classic film is Professor Greg Stallings from the Spanish Department, former co-director of International Cinema. Welcome back to From the Booth, Greg. Hey, Chip. Thank you. So help us out here. This is not uh, a film that you approach like films that you see down at the Megaplex. What do you typically tell your students about how they need to approach a, a film that's kind of as surreal, as abstract as a film like this one? Well, I try to tell them that, you know, basically they've been conditioned and trained unconsciously to favor a certain kind of cinema with happy endings, with kind of discreet music, you know, soundtracks, with traditional storytelling. And um, I try to convey to them that Luis Buñuel is one of the great pioneers of what we started calling in the early 60s art house films. In other words, films that oftentimes don't have any kind of ending at all, don't have music and Rather, they exist not to sell products or to make sequels and prequels and go on forever making millions of dollars for huge corporations. They exist so that the filmmaker, as an auteur, as a kind of both creative writer and artist, in the case of Buñuel, so that they can express and convey ideas or at least make us think about ideas. The challenging thing about this film is that, according to Buñuel, According to his son, for example, they both said that this film defies easy interpretations. Buñuel made a few comments on the film that I'll probably touch on, but the son famously said that, you know, whereas other films are designed to make us buy popcorn and drink drinks and, you know, have this kind of brainless two hour, hour and a half in the cinema, these films are guaranteed to make us think a lot. And especially this film, famously the experts on this film say things like, I've seen this film many times, dozens of times. Every time I go back to the film, I have a new idea. And at the same time, I have less of an idea as to what it's really about. And so that's yeah. the reason for this film. It that. keeps us thinking, you know, not just one time, but many times if you go back to it. Now, that, that makes a lot of sense that, that, you know, clearly it defies easy interpretation. Uh, where do you start with your students then? What are the kind of readings that you you typically work through with them on this film? Yeah, so with this film, usually we're at the end of the semester, so the students have a good idea as to, you know, you've the conditioned them, you've hardened them. <laughs> yeah, you know, well, we spent a few months, not just on the avant-garde, you know, but also at the same time, you know, for sure, we'll be talking about Spanish history and the great traumatic event of the 20th century in Spain, which is the Spanish Civil War. Right. You find, you know, kind of three major factors or factions together, collectivities. Number one, the military or the police kind of in cahoots. Number two, religion, a certain version of the Catholic Church, very ultra conservative, you know, almost a Pharisee kind of brand of the Catholic Church. And number three, the bourgeoisie, as Buñuel would call them, which are kind of the nobility and upper class business people kind of in cahoots. And um, that's what you see in Buñuel's career. You know, he has this brilliant trio of films related to Mexico in the early 60s. In 1960, he does Viridiana, which, you know, was scandalous for the Catholic Church. He got invited back to film in Spain, and um, 
he wasn't on his best behavior in that film, especially <laughs> black people with the notorious scene of, think about this, a dinner party, but full of beggars and, you know, homeless people who are completely abject and violent and creepy and it's yeah. awful. And so that really shocked the Catholic Church when he had that scene of a recreation of a perverse recreation of the Last Supper, accompanied by Hannibal's Messiah, of all things. And so, oh yeah, and got banned. <laughs> Provocative. Yeah, yeah, totally. Got banned by the Vatican. Got banned by Spain, of course. They tried to confiscate all the copies. The lead actor, who's or actress, who's the lead actress in this film as well, Sylvia Pinal, supposedly smuggled a copy of the film out of the country to save it from the people that wanted to destroy it. Censors. Oh. And it was banned in Italy, but of course, you know, it won major prizes around the world. So it solidified his reputation, his clout, his prestige, his autonomy as an auteur. Then he does this film in 1961. So you have to think they're all kind of connected, which mm-hmm. is not so much about religion, but rather about the upper classes. But it it's framed itself with the early shots of cathedrals, of churches. And then most the bulk of the film, the storytelling is about this dinner party that goes awry, that kind of goes to Hades, right? Right. Of polite, and at the end, people are basically committing all these savage, animalistic acts. And at the very end, they finally escape from the dinner party. And where are they? They're in a church, like having kind of a, a mass of Thanksgiving. And then when they try to leave, they're stuck. So everything's kind of cyclical. But, it, you know, the idea of like two frames of religion, in the middle there's a frame of the bourgeoisie, that's the film career as well, because the next film was Simon de Desierto in 1965. All these films with the same actress, Silvia Pinal, all, all three produced by her husband at the time, Gustavo Alatriste, and all three featuring in minor roles, except for Simon de Desierto, he, has, he is the star, the Mexican actor named Claudio Brooks. So, I, you know, I try to tell them that there are things to think about as far as Spanish history, but it may not be so obvious, Buñuel actually kind of resisted those kinds of interpretations. Mm -hmm. I would share with them usually a segment of a very well-known and often cited and referred to review of this film by the great film critic, late great film critic, Roger Ebert, who said, quote, obviously the dinner guests represent the ruling class in Franco Spain. Having set a banquet table for themselves by defeating the workers of the Spanish civil war, they sit down for a feast only to find it never ends. They're trapped in their own bourgeois cul-de-sac. Increasingly resentful at being shut off from the outside world, they grow mean and restless. Their worst tendencies are revealed, end of quote. So he says, obviously, this represents this group of 20 guests at a dinner party following an opera, everyone wearing tuxedos and elegant gowns. They represent the ruling class under Franco Spain. But of course, there's nothing obvious about it, right? So <laughs> right. At the same time, there are seeds here for kind of discussion, I think. Um, so well, I, I really like the idea of, of, you know, the in the same way that obviously in a very different, you know, kind of technique, but Parasite that we showed earlier this semester is interested in doing something kind of similar, right? And disrupting bourgeois existence. You know, in that case, it's a, you know, it's a very well-to-do family who lives up on the hill, who has no, you know, no sense of what's going on around. And yet it's about the violence that's, you know, that's in the house, right? That their existence depends on this kind of violence happening. That seems to be something that Buñuel, you know, was exploring a long time before, right? That there's this kind of 
you know, there's a repression, that there's a, um, that their existence is built on the backs of, you know, as the, the Ebert quote was saying, kind of the labors in the working class, uh, that that seems to be brought out here and that that well-functioning bourgeois home is disrupted in a, in a significant surreal kind of way. No, exactly. You know, for years, people would say, well, why treat these events and these things with comedy, with satire? But we have to remember Buñuel was one of the great, great pioneers of surrealism. He was there in the right. inner circle of surrealism, not just with Dali, Lorca, but also Breton. And he was hanging out with all these people in Spain and quickly in Paris, where he filmed his you know, first co-directed film with Dali, Uncien Andalou, then the second film, The Age of Gold, 1930. But The Age of Gold, again, is... <laughs> has these themes of dinner party, but invasions of animals. Uh, in that film, it's a cow that, you know, starts walking on top of the dinner table. Uh-huh. And all these bizarre things. And so, yeah, he's not just a forerunner by a couple of decades. He's a forerunner by almost 100 years. Yeah, no, really. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's really amazing, yeah. Well well ahead of the, of the time. Yeah, and I think that's why the film is so fresh and that he's exploring themes that are very contemporary, you know. And I mentioned in the introduction last week that, one of the greatest composers, living composers in the world, Thomas Addis of England, just three years ago, had the premiere of his opera, The Exterminating Angel, which closely follows the film, actually. And there are actually sheep on the stage and huh. all kinds of atrocities and a bonfire where they roast sheep, supposedly. I mean, it's they put it in front of you, but it's it's an opera, right? And yeah. That's another interesting thing to think about because Buñol loved opera. There are lots of opera references to this film. They come from the dinner party and they've been to the opera, right? And mm-hmm. uh, there's a gal that plays the piano and she plays operatic songs. Another woman who's the opera singer from that production is there at the party. So he loved opera. But yeah, it's a very contemporary theme. And um, there's a reason I think why Thomas Salas adopted it, why Stephen Sondheim is adopting a combination of two works, The Extraordinary Angel and a work that he does 11 years later, which is The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. Mm-hmm. That one's even more dreamlike, if you could believe it or not, but um, because it has to do with this uh, group of four elegant socialites that sit down at dinner tables to eat. And every moment that they try to eat, they get interrupted by terrorists or by natural disasters, all kinds yeah. of things. That's Stephen Sondheim's newest musical that he's working on. So the themes are very contemporary. Thomas Addis himself has said this film that inspired his opera he defines the destroying angel, rather, as an absence of will, a purpose, the feeling that the door is open, but we don't go through it is with us all the time. An instant of inaction brings about the complete breakdown of society and ultimately the end of the world. And the reviewer citing this quote by Ada said, it's a lesson worth pondering in an ominous historical moment. So it's very timely, but strangely enough, it's almost surreally contemporary. Mm-hmm. We think about our, you know, country at this very moment in many parts of the world people are locked in their houses they can't go out they kind of feel well and it's something that was completely unthinkable three weeks ago right that yeah we could be living like this and acting like this it you know there is this kind of fragility to you know to our existence that we had you know we kind of understood in the abstract you know that Benuel maybe is trying to point us in that direction but none of us really believed maybe yeah for sure and, uh, you know, the same social factions, not to be very political, but, you know, what eventually controlled Spain in the 1930s and became this horrible, repressive government under Francisco Franco was this kind of combination of people that couldn't kind of see outside of their own ideology. They were 
kind of mm-hmm. trapped in their own mental perceptions. When we think about the house, there are no real physical barriers. They spend the night thinking they can't really leave, and then they get up in the morning to leave, and then they stop trying to leave. And there's no barrier or anything like that. They just can't leave. From yeah. the outside, people are trying to get in, and they can't get in. A little boy walks up to the house and turns away because just because, you know. Just because, and, uh, yeah. It's very surrealistic, but it also seems to kind of symbolize, I don't know, the kind of inner fascism, to quote the philosopher Gil Deleuze, that a lot of people experienced in the 20th century and now in the 21st century this kind of really almost dangerous combination of a certain fanatical religion or religiosity with politics and or kind so, of adherence to certain ideological, you know, positions that are defended more for their position than for any real content. Right. No, exactly. And this kind of mindless group think, you know, that basically was Spanish fascism and fascism around the world, especially Spain, you know, in other countries, they don't combine religion as much with repressive politics, but that's totally Spain throughout the years, especially in the 20th century, but also other countries like Chile and Pinochet. Mm-hmm. So it seems like Buñuel is throwing an artistic bomb against these tendencies, but, but he does it with humor, with satire. A lot of people think that he almost is fond of these characters, that there's no hatred. He himself was part of the bourgeoisie. He tried to escape as a young man, but good luck with that, right? And so, I mean, he never <laughs> kind of trapped in this house, this imaginary symbolic house of ideology. And yet, perhaps the only way to kind of get a little distance is, you know, through humor. Or we think of the character that her nickname is Valkyrie, Leticia. He's yeah. played by his favorite actress during those years, Sylvia Pienaar. Where everybody else is terrified, mortified, becomes animalistic, stagnant kind of following the Freudian repetition compulsion idea. Mm-hmm. She is kind of floating around the living room, serving cups of water, you know, being kind to others. And again, her nickname is Valkyrie. And so you know more about the Valkyries than I do. But as far as I know, they're these mythological females, right? That, yeah, this kind of strong female characters. Yeah, the Norse mythology. Also operatic too, right? In that yeah, exactly. Wagner's picking up on. Yeah, the connections with Wagner, but these, you know, female mythological figures from North, Norse mythology that, you know, would bring succor to the dead and the hall of the dead. And so, yeah, perhaps the suggestion is we don't all have to kind of be reduced to the state of animalistic, cruel, savage behavior. And a message for today, because we see in the press constantly, you know, this kind of insensitivity, scapegoating of the Chinese, blaming the elderly, thinking the elderly don't really need to exist, right, for us to go on a stronger economy. At least with this kind of almost minor character, although played by his favorite diva at the time, Zilipino, he seems to suggest that there is room in the world for kindness, and perhaps that's the escape. Because Valkyrie, Leticia, she has two names in the film, she's the one who comes up with the idea at the end. Well, let's repeat the initial scene, which brought us into this dream world. And they repeat it, although with decrepit hair, and some of them are dead already. Yeah. And finally escape from the mansion, only to be in the church again and not escape. Yeah. But at any rate, that's kind of what I take out of it as a Christian. Buñuel would probably say, I doubt that, right? He'd probably roll his eyes or whatever because he wanted to basically savage the bourgeoisie. But I think as a Christian in his films, oftentimes there are little nuggets of kind of the original message of Christ, of kindness, compassion, and service. Yeah. Okay, well, that that uh, ends us on a on a fairly hopeful note. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. Greg, for for sharing your ideas and thoughts on what you know is a challenging film, but also really um, wonderfully provocative film. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and um, 
invite the viewers to not just watch it once, but you know, go back to it with each you know new viewing. You'll see new things and probably even enjoy it more. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Greg. You're welcome. That's our show for today. Thanks for joining us. We hope you are social distancing well and taking advantage of International Cinema's temporary online format. If you still need to get signed up for the rest of IC's streaming program, go to our website at ic.byu.edu to get information. If you have any feedback for us on the podcast, we invite you to contact us at intcinema, that's I-N-T-C-I-N-E-M-A, at byu.edu. From the Booth is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and supported by the BYU College of Humanities. The hosts and guests of this podcast are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here, as they do not necessarily represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. Thank you to Jojo Hegstrom Pratt, our sound engineer, as well as the staff and the BYU Humanities Resource Center for their help and support. Watch for our preview episode in which we'll tell you some things to look for in the films coming up. But until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and keep your eyes open for great films.